There's a great hymn by a man named Samuel Stone called The Church's One Foundation. You're probably familiar with it. In it, Stone notes some of the difficulties that the Church of Jesus Christ will face and does face and has faced throughout the ages. So a, f- a few of his, his lines, he says, Though with a scornful wonder men see her sore oppressed, by schisms rent asunder, by heresies distressed. He also writes that there be those that hate her. He's talking about her, the church, in female pronouns. There be those that hate her and false sons in her pale. And he mentions her toil and tribulation and tumult of her war. The song is ultimately really a song of hope, um, but he also poetically captures the fact that the church is presently oppressed in many ways and throughout history has had to endure various trials and hardship. Again, we've noted many times that the Christian life, according to Scripture, is not just one of ease, uh, and and that's plain in Scripture, and it comes out nicely uh, in that song. Last week, if you'll recall, uh, I mentioned how, uh, from uh, 2 Timothy 3.12, that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And so we talked about how this is true of Christians throughout the ages. It's no different for us now as it was for the Apostle Paul and the Thessalonians and the church throughout history. As it was in Paul's day, as it was in Samuel Stone's day when he wrote that hymn, so it is in ours. It may look differently, persecution might take different forms, but the truth remains. We will face persecution and we face trial. We have faced persecution, and we can expect to in the future. And this is not being uh, pessimistic or weird or downcast. It's just the reality. It's the truth. It's what Scripture prepares us for and tells us about. And I mentioned last week as well, if you'll recall, that now is the time to prepare for this. Uh, When you start to face opposition, uh, that's not the best time in the world to start thinking through your understanding of persecution and your theology of suffering. Uh, better prior to facing that onslaught to, to have an idea, to have a solid ground so that when it comes, you have something to stand on. And so I invite you to turn again to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 as we continue to work through uh, the first chapter. And in this passage, the Lord's desire for us would be to get our eyes off of the present earthly bleakness, and onto the future and eternal reality of when Christ returns. So we want to be looking to the end. That's what Paul is telling the Thessalonians. That's what he's wanting of them, to look to the future, to look to the return of Christ, to find hope there when facing persecution. And so... uh, the outline for today as we look through uh, verses, particularly verses 6 to 12, again, looking at this issue of when persecution comes, we're to fix our eyes on the end. When persecution comes, we are to fix our eyes on the end. So the three points we're going to look at, fixing our eyes on the end, will remind us that our present situation will one day be reversed. Number two, fixing our eyes on the end will remind us of the horrors of judgment. And number three, fixing our eyes on the end will remind us of the glory of Christ. The the glory of Christ. So, number one, when persecution comes, fix your eyes on the end. Fixing our eyes on the end will remind us that our present situation will one day be reversed. So, I invite you to read with me. We'll start reading in verse 5 of 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul writes, This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. So if you'll recall last week, we saw how the sufferings of the Thessalonians in their present time was evidence or was proof that God's future judgment is just. That those who believe 
now what is true, what is right, what is good, getting persecuted for that by those who are in opposition to this proves God's judgment on mankind is righteous. It, will, it vindicates him. It's evidence that his judgment is just. We, we talked about that last week. And, and so in verse 6 he says, Since indeed God considers it just or righteous to repay with affliction those who afflict you. So in verse 4, uh, last week, we, we saw um, Paul references the persecutions and afflictions that the Thessalonians were enduring. And here we, we clearly see that affliction is a synonym with persecution. So Paul's specifically talking about persecution here. We see this because uh, the pure persecutors in, are called those who afflict. So the same word is used. And the persecuted are those who are afflicted. So when he says persecutions and afflictions, in this case, uh, Paul is, is their synonyms for persecution. And so this God considers it just or righteous, then, to afflict the persecutors. So he's going to pay them back. Those who in this life take it upon themselves to harass and to persecute God's people will one day be afflicted by God himself. The tables will be turned. And this, God tells us here, Paul's telling us, is just. This is righteous. This is good. Additionally, God considers it just or righteous to, on the one hand, afflict the persecutors, but also, he says, to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. So granting relief, it can mean rest. That word is sometimes translated as rest. Um, We don't have a ton of detail of what exactly that will look like or mean given here. But the main idea that he's stressing is that in that day, while they're persecuted now and afflicted now, relief will come one day from God. It will be granted by God himself in his justice. He considers it just to one day relieve those who are persecuted now. Get relief from present suffering. So what these verses, what these verses then uh, depict is a complete reversal of the present reality of the Thessalonians. Presently, as Paul's writing this, they are afflicted by their fellow, uh, the, the fellow, their fellow Gentiles. Uh, they're suffering at their hands in various ways. And one day, this situation is going to be reversed. The, those suffering will get relief. Those doing the afflicting, they will be punished. When Paul adds there, when he says, as well as to us, in verse 7, Uh, Paul is showing that the Thessalonians, the Thessalonian church, and the apostles will receive the same relief together. The apostles, in the end, they're not on a different plane together. I mean, they they are the foundation of the church, the Bible says. uh, But together, all saints through all time, whether whether you are an apostle like Paul was, or whether you are the lowliest believer in Thessalonica, or whether we are ordinary people in Weyburn, Saskatchewan, our relief will be together. Our relief will not be different from theirs. With all saints through all time, we will be granted relief in the end. And so we need to expand our timeline when we think of justice. Uh, to not live in the moment. If we live for this world in this moment, persecution is not going to seem like it's worth it because it makes life miserable. Why suffer for Jesus? If we are trying to just live for this life and in this moment, then that's not going to seem worth it at all. But if we expand our thinking and we keep our eyes on the end, it will help us see that suffering for Christ in this life is very much worth it. Our relief ultimately will come at the end. Now, certainly in, in moments and in seasons of life, we get relief in this day. I think even as we gather uh, together to worship, hopefully this is a, a time of refreshment and a time of, of relief as we love one another and worship together. That should be the case. But these are foreshadows of the ultimate rest that is to come 
when Christ returns. And ultimately, we are to look there for our final and ultimate relief. And so as we face specific persecutions now in this life, we take comfort in knowing that justice will be served. Maybe not until the very end, but it will come. Our rest will come. And persecutors, if they don't repent and trust in Christ, which uh, Paul clearly did, he was a persecutor of the church, but he repented, trusted in Christ, and was saved. But if that does not happen, those persecutors will receive their due penalty from God. And it is just of him. And so eyes on the end will remind us that the present situation of suffering for Christians, of being persecuted, will one day be reversed. So we need to keep our eyes fixed on that. Number two, fixing our eyes on the end will remind us of the horrors of the coming judgment. This point is obviously related to the first, um, but he he goes on in, in the second half of verse seven, Paul goes on to explain when it is that the Thessalonian situation will be reversed, when it is their persecutors will um, be afflicted, and when it is they will get relief. He says, uh, just I'll read all of verse 7, uh, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. And so in verse 6 and the first half of verse 7, Paul says that the persecutors will be afflicted one day and the persecuted will be relieved. And now he says when this will happen. This will come when Jesus returns to judge all unbelievers. So the judgment of the persecutors is one part of a broader, more broad end times judgment. So Paul starts specific Uh, talking of the justice that will come for the the persecuted Thessalonians and their persecutors. And then he broadens it out a little in in the second half of 7 to show us that this will come when God comes not just to judge these persecutors, but the world. And so Paul describes this judgment happening when Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. The return of Jesus is described as a revelation, that's the word we get, um, where we get apocalypse from. Uh, so one day, Jesus, uh, as he truly is, in all of his glory, will be revealed to earth's inhabitants. And this relief comes to saints and the persecuted will be afflicted. That's when this happens, when Jesus comes and is revealed. And so just as a a side note, I'll just add, I think that this causes problems then for an understanding of a pre-tribulation rapture because relief for the church and judgment for oppressors comes at the same time, at the revealing of Christ. So I think think that causes problems for that uh, pre-tribulation view of the rapture. We'll leave that there for now. Happy to talk about it another time. But it says Jesus will be revealed. It says from heaven, so he's coming with the full authority of heaven. Uh, It says his mighty angels will be with him. The Bible speaks of the angels being present with him at the final judgment in various places. Uh, Matthew 16, 27, for example, Jesus says, For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Matthew 24, as well, in verse 31, talks about the, uh, the angels gathering the elect uh, from all around the world. Um, so again, I, I, as we noted back in 1 Thessalonians, Paul's eschatology is rooted in, in Jesus' teachings. Uh, and so this idea that the angels are coming with him, Jesus himself taught that, and, and I think that's where Paul's getting it from. So the angels will be with him, these mighty angels. Paul says uh, Christ will come in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance. 
We are told in numerous places in Scripture that vengeance belongs to the Lord. Romans 12, 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. A similar thing is in Hebrews 10.30. So in this life, we will, we will sometimes see justice served uh, to an extent in this lifetime. We do see that. Uh, sometimes justice prevails. But oftentimes, we look out and we see things that don't seem to add up. We see a world where justice does not seem to prevail. We see wicked people go free, seemingly without consequence. We see this all over the place, just in our own almost backyard. Um, A man who once decapitated another man on a bus is now just within 10 years is free. Where is the justice in that, I would ask? And so we look around, we see things like that, and we think, uh, you know, there isn't justice. There is no justice here. But, again, if we think eternally, if we expand our view of the time it's going to take for justice to prevail, we see that God will bring justice. He will have vengeance, the text says, when he returns in flaming fire. This is not a capricious uh, judgment or vengeance. It's not a simple retaliation. It's not irrational outbursts of anger on the Lord's part. It is the settled, holy, righteous execution of God's justice that the Lord Jesus will bring about when he returns. So we, we, we do not see all We don't understand perfectly. We sometimes see moments where things appear to be unjust, or sometimes we can say very clearly that is unjust. Sometimes it's hard to know exactly what happened. The Lord Jesus knows, and when he returns, he will bring vengeance with him. We are told that he inflicts this vengeance in verse 8, on two, two types of people. He says, those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. So first, those who do not know God. Uh, it's not a reference to those who simply um, just haven't heard about him. Um, it's, a, it's referring to a refusal to acknowledge God, and therefore these people do not know him in any meaningful or, or saving sense. So if you recall Romans chapter 1, verse 18 to 32, tells us that there's enough knowledge of God in the universe, that the the world that God created, creation itself, the stars, the moon, the sun, the intricacies of the human body, the created world, is enough evidence, we're told in Romans 1, that mankind should see that and worship God. They should recognize that this is created by a powerful being, and they should therefore be thankful to this God, that he has given them life and has provided for them. But mankind, as we know, does not submit to this. In fact, in Romans 1, again, it says that man suppresses this truth in unrighteousness. And so not knowing God is not really a matter of just simply lacking information. It's, it's the result of human depravity. That even as we look at creation, we still reject God. It's not because He's altogether hidden. It's because our hearts are sinful and depraved. And so judgment will come to those who do not know God and on those who do not believe The gospel of God. So some people, some men and women, do get the privilege of hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ proclaimed. This is what we as a church ought to be doing and and certainly desire to be doing is sharing this gospel with people and uh, supporting those who are out sharing this gospel with people. Lots of people hear this news and yet still do not obey it. So when he says you do not obey the gospel, what, what does he mean by that? Is not, isn't the gospel something to be believed, not obeyed? Uh, what, is, what does Paul mean? Well, the gospel includes a summons to repent and believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. 
And this is, is worded in Scripture as a command. Acts 17.30. God commands all men everywhere to repent and believe the gospel. So to not obey the gospel is to, not, is to refuse to believe, is to refuse to repent and turn to Christ for forgiveness. And so we see that those who do not know God and those who refuse to believe His gospel will face fiery vengeance of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then what will this punishment be? Well, he goes on. He says, They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. This is, this is referring to an eternal conscious punishment. It is a destruction or a ruin that never ends. It's never completed. Matthew 25, 46 says, And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Both are eternal. One is punishment, one is life. In Mark 9, 48, Jesus describes it as uh, being thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And he's quoting there from Isaiah 66, 24, which talks about the end times judgment as well, when the Lord brings in the new heavens and new earth. And so again, we don't have explicit details of what exactly this means or looks like, this eternal punishment. But the Bible uses the language of fire, of eternity, outer darkness, weeping and gnashing of teeth, destruction, and it's also called the second death. So these are various terms used to describe hell, to describe the punishment for sinners. It's a lot of its apocalyptic language to show that it's unending and it's horribly bad. Moreover, Paul goes on here to say that it is away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. And if you, are, if you have an ESV uh, Bible, you'll see a footnote there beside the words away from. And then if you read the footnote down at the bottom, it says, or destruction that comes from the presence of the Lord. So there's a couple possible understandings of what Paul means here. Uh, first, it could mean that the punishment of eternal destruction is physically away from the presence of the Lord, as it seems to be, as it's written in the ESV translation, away from the presence of the Lord. That is that Paul is talking about a, um, a spatial separation, like you would tell a child to keep away from the stove. You want a separation there, a physical separation. And so the, the Greek uh, preposition that's translated away from, uh, the Greek preposition there normally has that meaning, this away from, the spatial separation, normally has that meaning, which is why it's translated that way in the ESV. But, and this is why the ESV puts this note in, because it, co it could mean that eternal destruction comes from the presence of the Lord. That is, that the, the, uh, the presence of the Lord and His glorious might, as Paul says, is the source of the destruction. That is, it's coming from him and his presence and his might. And the, the Greek preposition, again, sometimes does convey that meaning. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a possible uh, translation. It's a possible understanding that, uh, that it's where it's describing um, the source of something. So different Bible-believing Christians, uh, commentators, take different positions on this, different understandings. But I think it's better to understand it in the second sense, that the destruction comes from the presence of the Lord and His glorious might. Uh, the reason being, um, the context here is, is, is Jesus coming to bring judgment. Um, so it would make sense then if Paul's saying this comes from His presence. He's coming to bring judgment. Um, also, uh, this passage relies closely on Isaiah 2, 6-22, uh, in which future judgment there is described. 
And, and if you, the Septuagint is a Greek translation of the Old Testament, and Paul's words here are almost identical to what you find in three places in Isaiah uh, 2, um, verses 10, 19, and 21. Um, that, and there it pictures uh, people hiding from the Lord, which is a spatial concept. They're trying to get separation, but they're hiding because the presence and majesty of the Lord is bringing judgment, and that's why they're hiding. They want away from his presence because his presence means judgment for them. And so the picture here, then, in 2 Thessalonians is that, I think, best understands that destruction, this eternal destruction, issues forth from the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ and his glorious might. And so this... this means that judgment is not, they're not handed over to Satan. Uh, Satan does not rule hell. Uh, It's actually prepared for him. Uh, So he will suffer there. He will be judged there as well. Uh, So so sinners are not handed over to Satan. Um, They're not simply, oh, just left aside. Sometimes you, you, you hear hell described that way as, um, well, people don't want Jesus, so hell is just kind of he just sort of leaves them alone and, and away from them and turns his back on them. What's described is that the Lord Jesus actively brings destruction upon people. Uh, commentator Gene Green, who I've quoted before, says this, The idea is not merely that the disobedient will be excluded from the Lord's presence, but that from his presence the everlasting destruction comes forth. And such is the fate of those who do not know God or believe his gospel. Now, this is heavy stuff. This is not a topic or a subject that we should approach um, carelessly or casually or with a callousness or flippancy. So we, we, we must not be casual um, hellfire preachers that just like to throw it around. Uh, this is weighty stuff. This is heavy. If you consider these things that I've just said and what Paul is writing here, this reality of future judgment is true. It needs to be heard. It needs to be understood. It needs to be explained to people by us. But it's not one which we should be casual with. Eyes on the end, keeping our eyes on the end, will remind us of the horrors of future judgment. And I think the effect will be twofold, at least two effects. First, this will help us when persecution comes, because if this judgment is what's coming, this fiery judgment from the Lord Jesus Christ, if that's what's coming at the end, then we will want to avoid it at all costs. We'll want to stay true to the, to the Lord despite the suffering that we receive, knowing that there is a severe judgment coming to those who do not obey the Lord. Moreover, it should help us see the kindness of God in His salvation. We'll pick this up more in a second, but if that's what we deserve, this fiery judgment of eternal destruction, and God has forgiven us and saved us from that, how kind is the Lord? And so if we keep our eyes on that end, it will help us remember how great our salvation is. And as we suffer for it, we will cling to it all the more because we need that. We, will, we need that salvation on that day, lest we be destroyed. Another effect of, of, of thinking about the end and recalling the horrors of judgment is that when we are persecuted, this truth will also encourage us that justice will one day be handed out to those who do the persecuting, along with all of the ungodly. And so I would suggest that we are to soberly rejoice in the justice that is to come. Uh, rejoicing in the justice to come Uh, doesn't mean we are to be harsh about it or to take a sick pleasure in seeing people get what's coming. Um, Jonah, I think the story of Jonah is a good warning for this. 
Um, Jonah does not want to go to Nineveh, not because he's afraid of them, but because he does not want them to repent. He does not want them to receive the mercy of God. He wants there to be a roasting. He wants judgment to come. And even after he preaches, he goes up on the hill to watch, to see will the fireworks start or not. He wants to see these people get get what's coming to them. He wants judgment to fall on them. And the Lord teaches us and Jonah in that book that God has compassion and can show compassion. And we've been reading in Exodus. It's his prerogative to show mercy on whom he will show mercy. And so we ought to then desire to see people receive mercy and grace. That is a good thing for us. So we don't just approach uh, God's justice in the end um, and just say, well, I just hope everybody, you know, I just can't wait to see people get, get what's coming to them. That would be, um, I think, inappropriate to have that kind of an attitude. But there is also a way in which we ought to still take comfort and joy in knowing that justice will truly be served. And knowledge that we only escape that judgment by grace through trusting in the merits of Jesus Christ should instill a a somberness to our rejoicing in justice. Because if we're honest, we should be part of that eternal destruction. If it was up to us, we would be destroyed. And so as we think of the mercy and the grace that God has shown us, It should instill in us a soberness as we think of the justice to come at the end, even as we will be glad that justice will prevail in the end. And so I don't think arrogance in this has any place for us. Nevertheless, we should not apologize for the Lord's justice that is to come. The Bible presents this eternal destruction as being just, as being right, and being good. Jesus is certainly gracious and compassionate, but here we have a picture of a fiery Jesus returning with vengeance to bring eternal destruction to sinners. This is the same Jesus who tells sinners now to come to him, that his yoke is easy, his burden is light. It's the same Jesus who delights in little children coming to him and giving them the kingdom. And yet, we must understand that in Christ's first coming, he came to deal with sin and to inaugurate his kingdom. And in this time now, there is opportunity for people to be forgiven, to be shown compassion. And he does do this. He has his people out there who will be saved, who he will save. But upon his return, time will have run out. And it will be time for justice. There will be a final reckoning And the Bible says that this is good. It's good. And so, while these truths, while this truth of the punishment and consequences of sin is heavy, is difficult, let's not attempt to do better than the Lord by not liking it or by rejecting it. Let's not improve upon His justice by disagreeing with what we read. Friends, this is the picture we are given of Jesus. Most Christians, professing believers, they like the Jesus who holds the lambs and who invites the children to himself and who shows compassion and grace. And certainly, we love those qualities too of Jesus Christ and we're grateful for his compassion and mercy but he also will return with fiery vengeance. This is part of the scripture's 
picture of Jesus Christ. And that will be the revelation of Jesus in the end. And so this is our Savior. And we ought to soberly rejoice in the justice to come. Now there's question of how, I think this is a common question, how we will enjoy justice if we know people who are at the end of Jesus' sword. If we know people, family members, friends, neighbors, whoever, who on that day are going to be judged, how might we possibly rejoice in that? Well, I would suggest this. On that day, the revelation of Jesus Christ, we will be transformed. And we will all know beyond all doubt in that day that justice will be served. We read back in in 1 Thessalonians, we talked about how uh, the Lord Jesus will descend, the dead in Christ will rise first, and those who are alive will meet them in the air, and I believe then return to the earth, and the Lord will bring judgment Um, But we will receive, 1 Corinthians 15, imperishable bodies. We will be uh, resurrected, glorified on that day. And we will understand in that day that justice is truly being served, and we will agree with it. I've heard family members in the news, um, family members of violent criminals who commit horrible acts, I've heard family members approve of their punishment, approve when justice is served. You know, say, I'm, I'm, I'm glad the person got caught. I'm glad they're being, uh, that justice is being served for this. Because they, they understand that is just for this person to pay for what they did. And so how much more when we are glorified will we agree perfectly with God's good judgments? Weeping will be no more. And so a couple of, of thoughts if you're struggling with this idea of hell, this reality of hell, consider if this is just judgment, which the Bible says it is, then how heinous is our sin? In Scripture, we see that God that the the punishment for crimes, for example, in the Old Testament, was to fit the crime itself. That's the concept of eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, that's in the Old Testament, that underscores God's justice. And then we see eternal destruction, and that sounds over the top for things like lying. But the reason for that is because we have an exalted view of how great we are, and a low view of the holiness of God, and we don't understand just how heinous and awful our sins really are, and how our rejection of God is truly a cosmic crime, cosmic treason. And that's what the doctrine of hell helps us understand, just how sinful we are and how bad our sin is. And so, scriptures like this correct our understanding and snap us out of our delusion that it's not so bad. So if we're struggling with hell, consider if this is just judgment, then just how awful and heinous our sin is. But also, if this is just judgment, then how good is your gracious salvation? How loving is Christ to go to the cross and bear the punishment of his people there? To receive the wrath of Almighty God for the sins of those who believe. Romans 5.8 says, God demonstrates his own love toward us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. If this is just judgment for our sin, eternal destruction from the presence of the Lord, then how kind is it that God would graciously save anyone? So as we face persecution, eyes on the end will remind us of the horrors of judgment, which will give us focus and encouragement to stay the course, to stay the course. I just want to say, 
if you feel the weight of it and you are uncertain of where you will stand that day, of what hope you have on that day, if you are confident that you are sinful and that you fall short of the glory of God, and you tremble at the thought of the Lord returning in fiery judgment, the only hope you have is that Jesus Christ died to save sinners. Jesus came, lived the perfect life, and on the cross bore God's wrath for sin, died, rose again from the dead, ascended to heaven, from which he will come in the end, and will bring judgment, but as we will see, will also bring relief, and, ha- and have seen, to his people. And your only hope is not your goodness. You can never cancel out your sin by your good deeds. Your only hope is Christ. Your only hope is to deny yourself and to trust totally and completely in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, that he might Give to you his righteousness so that when the Lord Jesus returns, you will be those with him, caught up together with him, rejoicing at his coming. That is our hope. And God gives that by grace. It's a gift of his grace. If you believe that message, he's been gracious to you. That's not a result of your works. And so rejoice in the Lord and for his salvation. Number three, finally, fixing our eyes on the end will remind us of the glory of Christ. This part's more exciting. Jesus will return to bring vengeance on unbelievers, but also for believers, he is coming to be marveled at. So verse 10, when he comes on that day, let's just back up a bit. So verse 9, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction from, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. So when Jesus comes on that day, there will be judgment for some, but also he's coming to be glorified in his saints. So again, as we saw back in 1 Thessalonians, dead in Christ will rise first, and those who are alive at his coming will be caught up together with them in the air. And on that day, Christ will be glorified in his saints, in his people. His redeemed people on that day will be glorified and perfected, resurrected. And this will bring our Savior, Jesus, glory. It'll bring him honor as his saved people are there with him in our completed state of salvation. Also on that day, we, his glorified people, will marvel at our Savior. We will see him as he is. We will understand where all of this was headed. We will see it. We will be there for it. We will be resurrected. We will receive imperishable bodies on that day, made immortal. We will see our King, our Savior, and we will marvel at Him, Paul says. And Jesus is coming for that purpose. And so this is the glorious day that we are headed towards. And Paul says this will, is possible for them, the Thessalonians, because, he says, our testimony to you was believed. So again, on that day, Christ will be glorified in them, in the Thessalonians, and they will marvel at him because they believed the apostolic testimony, namely the gospel. They trusted in Jesus Christ, and because of that, because that testimony was believed, when Christ returns, Christ will be glorified in them, and they will marvel at his coming. And this is how anyone will glorify Christ on that day. This is how anyone will marvel at him, by trusting Christ in this lifetime. So Christ will come glorify himself in us and we will marvel at him. This is good news. This is good news to remember at all times, but obviously so when facing persecution and trials. Paul then ends this section uh, with a prayer 
Uh, let's read verses 11 to 12. He says, To this end, we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So knowing the end of, of believers, where we're headed, Paul prays that in this present life, God would make them worthy of his calling. And last week we talked about the same words are found in verse 5. And last week we talked about how that is basically equivalent to saying, uh, to sanctification. God says that Paul's praying that they would, uh, as, as that God would make them worthy, that they would be um, made more holy in this present time. And so he, he prays also God would empower them in their resolve to do good and for their works of faith or good works done in faith. And again, I think these three things listed here that he's praying for are basically synonymous, that he's ultimately desiring and praying for their sanctification in light of what's coming. In light of where we are headed, this is appropriate in the present to press forward in faith, seeking faithfulness in all areas. And then Paul goes on to give the purpose for this prayer, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, the Lord is glorified in us presently as we are sanctified, as we are made worthy of his calling, and as we know, we'll then be glorified ultimately on that day when that process is brought to completion. And so again, given the end for which we are headed, that is to marvel at Christ and to glorify Him on that day, it is fitting and right now to pursue glorifying God in the present by pursuing godliness, by pursuing sanctification, by praying for it for one another. And so this is why Paul prays for them. So looking to the end then will remind us of the glory of Christ in which we, we will take part in it. We will be there for it, which will motivate us toward godliness now, even in the face of much opposition, even in the face of persecution. Christians are to live by faith, which among other things means living in light of the end, when Christ returns, when he returns to make everything right, to bring about justice. And this is crucial truth at any time, but especially when facing persecution. Things will be reversed in the end. That is our hope, that we will be glorified with Christ. And to be part of that, God calls us today to repent of our sin, to place our faith in Jesus Christ. And our hope is that on that day, we will be with him. I started the this, this sermon by quoting a few lines from Samuel Stone's hymn, uh, The Church is One Foundation. And just as we close, um, I would like to just read one of those verses. It says, Mid toil and tribulation and tumult, of her war, the church's war, she waits the consummation of peace forevermore, till with the vision glorious her longing eyes are blessed, and the great church victorious shall be the church at rest. That is our hope. There is a day coming when we are an embattled church now, but one day we will be the church at rest. And so we press forward now, whatever our trials, whatever persecutions come, reminding ourselves of that day, looking to that day. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And God, we realize as frail human beings, that these are weighty truths. And we don't even grasp the full weight of them, but these are heavy things. This reality of a future judgment. And I pray that this would cause a soberness 
in our hearts. And that this would cause us first to make sure we are right with you, trusting only in Christ. And it would also help us to see the urgency of things for those around us as well. Forgive us for so easily losing sight of this. I pray that you would use this truth now to encourage your people, to remind us of the glory of your salvation and your grace and love for us. I pray that you would use this, if there's any here who do not know you, that you would use this to shake them out of that, that they might find refuge and grace in your Son, Jesus Christ. God, I pray that when persecution comes, you would help us to remember to fix our eyes on the end. That we would remember the day to which all of history is headed, where Jesus Christ will return in fiery vengeance and in glory. May our understanding of, of, of our Savior be fully formed by, by your word, that this picture would also be there as we think of Jesus and who he is, along with the fact that he is one who has compassion and grace on those whom he will. God, I pray that we would take sin seriously, seeing again the penalty for sin, that we would not play with it or flirt with sin, but that we would run from it. I pray that you would be purging us of sin, be moving us along in holiness, that as we consider the return of Christ, that we would long in this moment now to glorify him even now. And so, God, make us faithful. Make us obedient. Help us to love one another well. Help us to rejoice in the gospel of Jesus Christ, our only hope. We give you praise and thanks. And we just pray that you would also bless the rest of our time as we continue to fellowship around food. May our conversation be honoring to you. Continue to work in our hearts. Lord, may these not be seeds that the enemy snatches from the path, nor be seed that springs up but then gets choked out by cares of the world. Lord, may these things take root in our hearts and produce fruit. We pray for all of those that we are sharing the gospel with, that you would convict them of sin, help them to see their great need for Christ and to turn to you. We give you praise again for your grace to us. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.